0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is going to be the first of several episodes where we're talking about the book that I mentioned, I wanted to do kind of a book club or at least a discussion on the podcast about. So normally, I don't get a lot of questions or emails or things to discuss from listeners about certain podcast episodes or if we're doing a series. When I did a series with Rachel Allen on female sexuality, we did a three-part series a year or so ago. And we did get some people actually in between recording the episodes, we did get a couple of questions, which was really nice and helped shape and inform the discussion that Rachel and I had about female sexuality. So I'm totally open if listeners feel like they want to interact with me as I'm recording podcast episodes about different books that we're going to be discussing. It's totally fine with me. Um, It just doesn't. Typically happen. So the book that I had chosen to discuss in February is The Tao of Fully Feeling. And the subtitle is Harvesting Forgiveness Out of Blame. And the author is Pete Walker. Now I was discussing this with one of my clients last week, and he was, you know, re-listening or rereading this book. I think he's read it before, and he was rereading it when he heard that I was going to be discussing it on the podcast. And he was just saying like, wow, there's just so much in there. And I told him, I said, I had started listening to this book, I don't know, over a year ago. I feel like since COVID hit, I have no good grasp of time. Like I'm like, maybe it was a year ago. Maybe it was two years ago. I don't know. And I never finished it and I couldn't remember why. And so I started listening to it again and I was like, oh, right it's one of those books that I am listening to and then I was like, I really need to buy this book and kind of follow along or go back and read certain things or highlight things. I like to do that in my books. I like to write in my books and I like to highlight things and write next to them and I have a whole system. So I can never like donate books because people are going to be like, what was this? What's this? Who who did this to this book? So And then I kept listening to the book and then I'm like, yeah, no, I really got to buy the book. And so I did buy the book, but I didn't go back and finish listening to the book. And then I probably got busy while I was waiting for the book to come and got busy listening to something else or doing something else. So I'm going through and listening to the book and I have a copy, a hard copy. Well, it's a paperback copy of the book that I can be, you know, going back and reviewing and reading it and highlighting it and writing in it as I go along reading it. And so it didn't take me long this time restarting the book to be like, yeah, this book is not going to fit in one month. And maybe there's going to be other books that I have planned that it's not going to fit in one month. So that's okay, because there can be so much great discussion from some of these books that maybe we don't capture in one month. And so that's okay. So this book, actually, I'm going to spread out. And we're going to be doing, we're going to listen to this book, or read this book, whatever, we're going to be talking about this book for February and March. So I'm going to spread this book out over two months. And hopefully I can do it justice. I'm not going to like read the whole book to you. But I'm hoping to do it justice. I just don't think I could do justice to everything that he covers in this book in one month. So we're going to give it two months. I'm going to plan several episodes, probably seven, I'm thinking. So I'm going to be releasing weekly episodes, which I haven't done for over a year. So I'm going to be releasing weekly episodes to cover this book and do justice by it in seven weeks. So over February and March. So I want to start in this book. In the introduction, there's so many good things he writes about in the introduction about why he's writing this book and what he wants to cover in this book and how to, you know, he talks about that this book, The Tao of Fully Feeling, is a guide to reclaiming the emotional richness we are stripped of in childhood as our land is stripped of timber and coal. And he talks about how The Tao of Fully Feeling is born out of his own personal struggle as well as the struggle of his clients and his friends to reclaim their feelings. He says it's an invitation to discover how feeling and emoting naturally reprioritize our values so that love and intimacy are once again elevated above acquisition and consumption. I love that. I love that for so many reasons and for so many plans that I have to talk about on the podcast this year that I'm not going to get into in this episode. I remember a couple of years ago, I was reading his first book, CPTSD. I I think it's his first book. I actually don't know that when I just said that. It was the first book I read of his. And I think I had this belief before I was reading his CPTSD book. But he says it in that book. And I remember hearing it because I typically listen to books. I also own that book. And then reading it in print in his book. And I thought, wow, wow. He's kind of brave to make a statement like that. That's kind of a big statement to make. And I knew that I believed it um, because I already had that belief myself. But I, I don't even know if I had spoken it. And so his speaking it and writing it actually has given me courage to start speaking about it and talking about it more. And that is he says that we are facing an epidemic of family dysfunction in our world. That's a bold and powerful statement. And then when you combine that with his statement, just in the introduction of this book, where he says that this book is an invitation to discover how feeling and emoting naturally reprioritize our values so that love and intimacy are once again elevated above acquisition and consumption. And he says, he quotes John Bradshaw. He says, I agree with John Bradshaw that our culture is afflicted by an epidemic of poor parenting, kind of a different way of saying that we're facing an epidemic of dysfunctional families, which he said in his other book. He says this, my belief that we are suffering a parenting crisis is also grounded in my six years of experiences living with or near non-industrialized people three years in Africa and Asia, and three years adjacent to an aboriginal reserve in northern Australia. He says, in comparing pre- and post-industrial parenting practices, it seems evident to me that Western parents have lost touch with their emotionally-based parenting instincts. This factor alone causes most of our children a great deal of unnecessary and inadvertent damage and deprivation. This observation is epitomized in the reaction of the Native Americans of California to the first Western settlers. They were so taken back by the Europeans' lack of compassion for their children that they disdainfully labeled them the people who beat their children. He says, I've had innumerable experiences of envying the relationships between parents and children in primitive cultures. Parents in these cultures guide and care for their children in common sense ways, That we have long abandoned, just as we have abandoned many of our feelings and instincts. He then quotes Alice Miller, who describes the parenting process that robs us of our feelings before we can consciously own and value them. She writes We have all developed the art of not experiencing feelings. For a child can only experience his feelings when there is somebody there who accepts him fully, understands, and supports him. If that is missing, If the child must risk losing the mother's love or that of her substitute, then she cannot experience these feelings secretly just for herself, but fails to experience them at all. Reminds me, I think it's Bowlby's quote. He writes about attachment. I think he was writing about attachment in the fifties and his quote says something like, what cannot be known to the mother cannot be known to the child. Which again is that same idea of Alice Miller saying, you know, that children's feelings, we can only experience our feelings as children if there's somebody there who accepts us and our feelings fully and understands and supports us. And if that's missing, then we won't experience them at all. He says this, which I think is, I think it's important to go over. He says, I have been down many blind alleys in my attempts to come to terms with my emotions. I've repressed them, swallowed them, drowned them in drink, ascended above them in clouds of hemp, starved them out, interred them with food, transcended them in meditation, outrun them, outsmarted them with rationalization, exercised them, handed them over to higher beings, transmuted them into pretty lights and even briefly felt them before purging them in dramatic catharsis that promised to render them finally extinct. I was misled by a plethora of self-help books, workshops, hands-on cures, psychological disciplines, and spiritual practices in my attempts to procure permanent relief from the emotional pain that so besieged me. Most of the cul-de-sacs I explored in my flight from my feelings shared a common characteristic— the promise of an everlasting transcendence of normal emotional states like anger, sorrow, and fear. The most detrimental of these, he says, were those promising permanent attainment of preferable emotional states like happiness, love, and peace. I vividly remember the abject disappointment I experienced when the short-lived benefits of one approach or another became so historical, I could no longer pretend they were mine. Time after time, promises of permanent contentment were broken as the emotions that were supposed to be permanently resolved inevitably returned. Inundated with toxic shame for failing once again to transcend my suffering, as others seem to be doing, I inevitably embarked on yet another desperate search for a new panacea for my feelings. How novel and amazing that all I have to do now with my feelings is accept them. Sometimes I can hardly believe how easy it is to simply feel them or give them benign expression. Am I really the same person who 20 years ago belonged to that vast contingent of men who don't know a feeling from a fig? So I think, you know, he makes a great point in the introduction as to how we disconnect from our emotions and, you know, not necessarily as a conscious choice. We're disconnecting as a way of survival because we're doing it at such a young age. And then some of the causes or the consequences, I guess, of disconnecting and not being a fully feeling human being. So in chapter one, he talks about the importance of recovering the whole emotional nature. He quotes Carl Jung, who says, Feeling tells us how and to what extent a thing is important to us. And then he quotes Dennis Holy, who says, America is a nation of emotional orphans. Adult children grew up without effective parents Tens of millions of our friends, neighbors, spouses, and lovers had childhoods where their parents were not emotionally there for them. I often will say to clients, you know, if they come in with this idea of, you know, having a great childhood and this, I came from a perfect family. I have a lot of clients when we start out therapy, they're telling me I had a perfect family. I had a great childhood. You know, I had one client, I think he summed it up. and When we were starting out, he said, I was popular. I had a lot of friends. I got good grades. Okay. That doesn't really tell me much about your childhood. That tells me how you performed and your ability to fit in socially, but that doesn't really tell me what I need to know about you as a human being. Again, that says something about our need to accomplish or climb or own things, right? Which he was talking about in the beginning, but that doesn't really tell me about who you are and What makes you come alive and what you feel? I did not say that to him, right? Because when we're starting this path into the self, we have to start gently. I was doing a a presentation years ago and I was talking about, you know, I don't remember my title, but I remember kind of thinking to my head I was coming up with as I was prepping for it. I was coming up with all of these different images in our culture, or sayings that we had that really kind of talk about putting, you know, our head above the heart or like this disconnect between the body and the mind, you know, things like mind over matter, as if we can just do that, as if that's actually how it works or saying that makes that true, right? What you think you are, right? Like those types of things that just kind of miss the point, but also reveal to us, what our society desperately wants to be true. Pete says, feelings and emotions are energetic states that do not magically dissipate when they are ignored. Much of our unnecessary emotional pain is the distressing pressure that comes from not releasing emotional energy. When we do not attend to our feelings, they accumulate inside us and create a mounting anxiety that we commonly dismiss as stress. He says, stress is not merely a detrimental physiological reaction to noxious external stimuli such as noise pollution commuting long work hours and the hustle and bustle stress is also the painful internal pressure of accumulated emotional energy I also wonder you know in the hustle and bustle or the noise and pollution and the commuting and the long work hours of our world I wonder if we're that adept at differentiating between that type of stress and the internal stress that results as our emotional energy accumulates. He talks about, you know, the solution to this as if it's easy. It's not easy, but he says grieving explored at length herein is the most effective stress release mechanism that human beings have. Grieving is a safe, healthy release valve for our internal pressure cooker of emotion. He says, I have had numerous experiences of feeling as if I were about to explode that were immediately discharged with a good cry. And I see others obtain the same wonderful relief almost daily in my work in private practice. He says, we suffer many dire consequences when we are unwilling to feel. The price of emotional repression is a constant wasteful expenditure of energy that leaves many of us depressed and taciturn. Perpetually enervated, more and more of us sink into the apathy and of the seeing that, been there, done that syndrome. When this occurs, we forfeit our destiny of growing into the vitally expressive and life celebratory beings we were born to be. He says, our war on feelings forces our emotions to turn against us. Much of our unnecessary suffering is caused by the ghosts of our murdered emotions wafting into consciousness and haunting us as hurtful thinking. Denied emotions taint our thoughts with fearful worry, dour self-doubt, and angry self-criticism. We also risk acting out our emotions unconsciously when we are unwilling to feel them. Sarcasm, criticality, habitual lateness, and forgotten commitments are common unconscious expressions of anger. Think about that for a minute. Think about if you know people who are sarcastic or critical. Maybe they're always late. That was my mom. She was always late to everything. We used to say, like, if we had, if we were supposed to be someplace at 7 p.m. and we left the house at 7 p.m., mom thought we were on time, which also sometimes meant, you know, I remember, you know, when I was working, when I had a job and I didn't have a car or I couldn't drive yet, you know, we don't have cell phones back there or anything like that, and she knew when I got off, right? She knew when the place closed. And I would be waiting for her to come pick me up. And I just have to wait, right, until she came. But she was never there on time. And I can overlook that because I know so many people growing up had a similar experience as me. That wasn't uncommon for kids in the 70s and 80s. And sometimes it's not uncommon now. I mean, we have phones and we have we can get a hold of our kids or other parents or different things like that if if something happens because as a parent it is difficult to be in two or three places at the same time when your kids need you to be there but I also knew a lot of times that my mom just wanted to get some last things done before coming to pick me up I don't know why she couldn't do it when we got home my work was like literally 10 minutes from our house or 15 minutes from our house driving, it would be longer to walk. But, you know, she just needed to start that wash or, you know, do something here or do something there. And she just had to get those things done, which typically always made her late for everything. Or think of people, you know, who are forgetful and just think for a minute about what they might have experienced. Think of those habits that maybe are frustrating. Maybe they're just irritating or mildly annoying, but we just know to plan on that for them. But what if we were to look at that and say, I wonder what their unconscious expressions of anger would be if they could actually say it directly. If they could actually talk about what makes them angry, then maybe these behaviors would change. Pete says, ironically, these passive aggressive behaviors leave us in an even greater emotional pain because they cause others to distrust and dislike us. He talks about the epidemics of overeating, over-medicating, and overworking that plague America are also rooted in our mass retreat from feeling. When we are feeling phobic, we are compelled to distract ourselves from our emotions with mood-altering substances, workaholism, or constant busyness. Many of us, as Anne Wilson Schaaf points out in her book, When Society Becomes an Addict, are addicted to at least one self-destructive substance or process. He says, ironically, our distractions typically add to the underlying pain we are trying to avoid. With chronic use, they eventually do grave damage to our bodies. Our frenzied pace and use of chemicals, prescribed, illicit, or over-the-counter, numb us so thoroughly that we often don't feel their debilitating effects until we are seriously ill. We have become so resistant to feeling pain that we are continuously inventing new ways not to fill. The widespread narcotization, I don't know how to say that narcotization of housewives with Valium in the 50s and 60s set a precedent for the current mushrooming anestization. I know how to say that word. I'm just struggling right now. anesthetization, maybe that's it anesthetization of both sexes with modern antidepressants, Drugs like Prozac, Zoloft, and Paxil are currently being used as designer drugs, and many general practitioners with little psychiatric training liberally prescribe them to anyone who complains of feeling bad. Now, just a note, and I think he would agree with this, like he's not saying if you're on antidepressants or medication for your anxiety, he's not saying go off of it and it's not necessary and it's being misused. But so often we want to medicate things instead of actually working through them and facing them, which we know isn't going to work. We know that just put somebody on medication that maybe kind of numbs them out or in different ways kind of alters their state doesn't is if that's treating a symptom, right It's not actually getting to the root cause, but we are so resistant to feeling any pain that our culture has created a lot of different ways to help people do that you know right now where I live and I think this is true not just in Utah you know but it's becoming so trendy right now I hear it all the time and you know people ask me about it and like a lot of times I don't even have to answer because they're not necessarily wanting an answer from me it's just a way of initiate the conversation and then they'll tell me what they think you know but ayahuasca ceremonies or mdma or psilocybin again i'm not saying that those drugs don't have their use in treating mental health and trauma i'm saying that's not how they're being used i'm saying we don't have a society that actually supports what we need to do to heal from the trauma and prevent the trauma from being given to the next generation and the next generation and instead we just can use some pretty powerful drugs to create a really good feeling in ourselves and then we think somehow that it's magically fixed I don't know if you like me know people who have done this and had a profound experience right They'll usually will say had a profound experience and I'm like yes That's what those drugs do. They provide a profound experience. And I am a different person. I'm changed. And I'm thinking, "Mm, when was that? Did you say? Yeah, I don't think that. I've noticed that same change. I'm not saying you didn't have a profound experience, right? I'm saying change is hard because there's a lot of things we have to face. And I just don't see a way to bypass the work that is there so that we can reclaim what was stripped of us from often from ages that we didn't even realize or give consent to those things being taken away from us. He also says in chapter one, many of us balk at the idea of welcoming our feelings because we rarely witness healthy emotional expression. That was true for me. I usually saw emotional expression that was out of control Dangerous, abusive. You know, to me, I remember thinking, like, that's just humiliating. And so I didn't want to do that. And so I willingly gave up some of my emotional experience or the ability to emotionally express. So then he says, the small percentage of people in our culture who do express feelings are often emotional in obnoxious ways. And many individuals under the influence are pathetic or hurtful in their unbridled emotionalism. He says, while I believe we do not have much choice about what we feel, I know that we have many choices about how we respond to our emotions. He says, the Tao of Fully Feeling describes the middle ground between emotional explosiveness and emotional deadness. Between miasmic moodiness and desiccated feelinglessness. It provides pragmatic advice for dealing with painful and potentially disruptive feelings in a non-destructive way. He says we can learn to be emotional in benign ways. We can have our emotions without holding on to them or blowing them up. We can soften and relax into our feelings without exiling or enshrining them. We can let our feelings pass through us when they have fully served their function. I was talking with a client the other day and he and I have been doing a lot of work as he's been working on his recovery and having success in sobriety and then success in recovery. And he was venturing out and he had started to date. And, you know, we'd done some prep work that like when we start to take what we've learned emotionally and individually and we start to take that into relationships, you know, it's a learning process and usually First one is never the success, right? It's not the right one initially, and that's fine. And so he was dating somebody, you know, for kind of a shorter time period and then realized like, mm, I don't know that this is a good fit and was moving on. And so, you know, we had met for a couple of weeks when I knew like he was kind of aware, probably not working, think I might end it. Okay, it's ended. And we've also done a lot of work as, as he's been working on sobriety and recovery talking about feeling the emotions in the window of tolerance. So you've probably heard me talk about the window of tolerance in other episodes. And sometimes I'll explain the window of tolerance like a scale. Like if we have a spectrum of emotions from 1 to 10, and let's say 1 is not really feeling emotions or we're unemotional or like he just said, feeling less-ness, and 10 is more explosiveness right and we're hyper aroused and you know we're kind of in this danger space where maybe you know the one is just like shut down we're hypo aroused then that window of tolerance would fit you know four to six and that's kind of where we want to live life is that four to six where we can have the emotions right but they're not explosive and we don't have to shut them down or repress them and so he was talking about You know, and it was his choice to end this relationship that he was saying, you know, I I feel kind of sad. And he's like, I mean, I I know it wasn't going to be the relationship that I wanted, which is progress for how he's done relationships. But he said, you know, I was just kind of feeling sad and it was kind of nice to have somebody that I smiled when their text came through or that I enjoyed talking to at the end of the day after work. And he's like, I'm missing that, you know. And so I said, well, I think that's totally appropriate. Like, I think it's sounds perfectly reasonable to feel sad at the ending of a relationship, even if it was not a significant long-term relationship. It totally makes sense to me that you would feel sad, which kind of surprised him, actually. And so we started talking about, you know, the emotions and what they look like and how was he letting himself feel the emotions of this breakup and what were the emotions And as we talked, I said, well, it sounds like you're having very natural emotions for this situation, but you're having them in the window of tolerance. And he kind of was a little surprised, like, wait a minute, talk more about that to me because he's like, I guess I always thought in the window of tolerance, I'm like Zen or I'm content or I'm happy or I'm peaceful. And he's like, so say more about that, right? And so I said, well, no, I don't, I think we can have all of our emotions in the window of tolerance. I don't think the window of tolerance means we're happy or we're content or we're in like Zen-like state, right? I think it just means they're not, we're not pushing them down and repressing them. And it means we're not grabbing a hold of them and making them as big as we can. It just means we're having this sadness, we're having disappointment, we're feeling loss at the right place, at the right level and the right intensity that it actually feels. And it feels quite natural and it feels authentic and it feels like, yeah, this is what it feels like. And we don't have to alter it in any way for whatever purpose people will alter it, either to shut it down or to blow it up. He also talks about, and and this is throughout this book, he talks about the process of opening ourselves up to emotions, which then typically leads us into a grieving process and the role that then forgiveness plays. So, you know, he says here, without the full spectrum of emotions, we are not whole human beings. We are instead like the artist whose palette only has room for light and cherry colors. Our self-expression is boring and superficial, like discount store paintings, unconvincingly ethereal in their insipid feathery pastels. I love that. Insipid feathery pastels. I know exactly what pictures he's talking about in in those discount stores. He says, the negative emotions add dark colors to an artist's palette. They open up an infinite range of color, hue, and tone. Without black on the palette, there are no rich colors. No depths, no contrasts, no intricacy. Yeah, intricacies, in, intricacies, yeah. That sounds weird. Am I saying that right? Intricacy. I think I'm getting the intricacy. There you go. That's how you say it, intricacy. Without the dark colors, it is impossible to capture the infinitely diverse themes and landscapes of life. Without our darker emotions, there's little depth and dimensionality in our connection with others. We cannot access the many avenues and subtleties of communication that make friendships rich and enduringly interesting. If we can only be friends when we are happy and up, then our friendships are painfully superficial." I was talking with a couple today in a session and, you know, they had had an argument. They, they're making a lot of progress and they were both saying, while we had this argument and it, you know, they said, first of all, we both stayed engaged. You know, at one point, like he typically withdraws. She had stopped pursuing him. That's kind of their pattern. And, you know, he says, I I wouldn't say I withdrew. He's like, but I took some time to think about it and to figure it out. And he said, and I came back and I said, I'm not sure how to re-engage on this, which is a lot of progress for him, right? She said, you know, I typically also, I just give up thinking he's even going to hear where my point of view is or where I'm coming from. And she's like, and I didn't this time. And I gave him multiple opportunities to hear where I was coming from and to see that I wasn't a threat. I don't want to be the threat in his life. And she's like, and we were able to do it. And she's like, and actually it felt resolved. She's like, it was a fight that actually felt like it was resolved within a day and not like, okay, we're just tired of being angry at each other. So we're going to move on. Like it felt like it was finished. So as we were kind of talking about the lessons to learn from this recent conflict, and they were kind of giving me some of the details about the the conflict, you know, and it was a communication mistake, which I get so often we get a lot of couples who are saying, we need help on communication. And I'm like, most couples know how to communicate. They don't even have to speak and they can read each other. They know what the other one's thinking you know, the communication issues are not like that. And, but I was asking him, I said, so is your, he's starting to work on getting more in touch with his emotions. He's been one that kind of values thought and intellectual and reading and thinking and knowing over feeling. And so I was asking him like, you know, I mean, I, I said like one of the tricky things here is sometimes emotions look similar. Like, so your wife could be saying something that she felt strongly about or felt passion. In this instance, I don't know that it was her passion, right? But she felt strongly about something and was communicating that uh, with the strongness and with a firmness. And I said, and, and sometimes those things look the same, like conviction or passion or even excitement can also look like anger, right? Sometimes we raise our voice with both emotions Sometimes we talk faster with both emotions because of what we're feeling inside. But there's a big difference between excitement and anger or passion and anger. And we have to be able to start feeling those nuances. So we're reading people accurately, right? And he was saying, okay, so, and he has made progress on that. But he said, like, how do I do that? And I was like, well, you can't do it unless you are fully feeling yourself. It's only when we have access to our whole spectrum of emotion that we can start getting curious about where the other person is through our own mirror neurons and through our own understanding and process of empathy and then connect with them from that space. And sometimes we don't know. You know, I think, I I mean, I've had this experience when my kids were little and we're driving in the car somewhere and I'm telling my husband something and I'm, excited about what I'm saying or I'm passionate about what I'm saying or I feel it strongly and I'm talking loud and I'm you know maybe using my hands and I'm just like using my tone of voice in a way that I'm firm about this like I know it and my kids will say you know they'll all of a sudden tune into what we're doing in the front seat and they'll be like hey hey are you guys fighting And I'll be like, oh, no, I'm just telling him something that happened to me that I'm excited to share with him or that I wanted to share with him, right? And then they'll be like, okay, so you're not mad? Nope, not mad. And they, you know, go back to whatever they're doing in the car. You know, I mean, kids can mistake that. But it's not like we necessarily learn those nuances between emotions just because we get older. I think sometimes kids maybe have the best chance recognizing the nuances in the feelings before that starts to get stripped and taken away from them in our culture and in our society. He also talks about forgiveness in this chapter and he talks about, he quotes Jack Kornfield about forgiveness. He says, for most people, forgiveness is a process. When you have been deeply wounded, the work of forgiveness can take years. It will go through many stages, grief, rage, Sorrow, fear, and confusion. Pete talks about, you know, and and I hear this a lot too. Um, He says, I hear a great deal of dangerous and inaccurate guidance put out about forgiveness these days. Particularly about forgiving parents who were abusive or neglectful. Saying things like, you must simply choose forgiveness, right? Or I was told to frankly forgive. Is a common refrain in many recovery and new age arenas. He says, this black and white advice about forgiveness seems so irrefutable that many survivors unquestioningly accept it. Many decide to forgive but secretly feel awful about themselves because they never actually feel forgiving. Others think and truly believe they forgive, yet never feel any emotional substance in their forgiveness. Blind acceptance of the advice to simply choose forgiveness creates a condition of false forgiveness. False forgiveness is a psychic thin ice that obscures our underlying reservoirs of angry and hurt feelings about childhood. Unfortunately, this fragile mental construction cannot support an emotionally deep and truly intimate relationship with our parents. He says, real forgiveness has all but vanished from Western culture. It has been replaced by an unauthentic ideal of forgiveness that renders us amnesiac about our pain. He says, for those of us who were seriously hurt in childhood, and I know clients who are going to take exception with that word seriously, my former self, some of my siblings would say, well, I was not seriously hurt in my childhood. My mom once, when I was talking to her about abuse, I was in college, I was in my bachelor's level social work program. And they were talking in one of my classes about dysfunctional families, and I was like, tell me more like this is explaining so much to me and I thought this is great like if we can name it we can figure it out right and I kind of felt excited about this I went home I was telling my mom about it one of the worst fights I ever had with my mom and I kind of had to it was hard to my mom was smart it was hard to back out of an argument with her once you kind of got into it unknowingly especially when it was unknowingly that you got into it And I spent probably a good two to three hours. She could fight for a long time. So I probably spent two or three hours trying to convince her that I totally did not think we were a dysfunctional family. And that's totally not what I meant. But I had to like be super genuine because she could tell if you weren't genuine, if you were just telling her what you thought you wanted her to hear so you could end the fight. And so I know people who will take exception and say, I wasn't seriously hurt. My mom, when, when we were talking about the abuse, because I did try to say, but mom, there has been some abuse, like physical abuse. And she said, Jackie, nobody broke a bone, which I didn't realize was the definition of physical abuse, broken bones. And I remember saying to her, but like, mom, what if we just were lucky and we fell right? Like, it's not because people couldn't have broken bones. We could have broken bones. We just got lucky. We just... Or good at falling or landing when we got thrown, right? Or pushed. So he says, for those of us who were seriously hurt in childhood, forgiving feelings toward our parents rarely arise until we have drained our reservoirs of pain by grieving. Since real forgiveness, as we will see, begins with the self, I hope this book will help you understand how unfair it is to blame yourself for not simply choosing forgiveness. And we all know how. We avoid anything to do with grief or death or loss in our culture. I was talking to a friend last year, I think it was, and she was telling me about an article she was reading about, you know, aging and death in America. And I remember her saying something to the effect of, I don't know if I'm going to get this exactly right. She would remember it. She has a good memory. I should ask her. She was saying, we are one of the few cultures, if not maybe the only cultures who send our older people to homes, retirement homes, that type of stuff, to die over there, and not to die with us, right? And I I've known hospice workers. One of my employees was formerly a hospice worker. She loves hospice work, and she would talk. She'll talk about you know, her job as a hospice worker, and how much she loved that. But I wonder how much of our culture's avoidance of death or grief or loss or the pain of anything or the feelings that come requires us to have hospice workers. Not that they don't do an important job, but I wonder how much of that we could do better if we were fully feeling. Pete says this at the end of chapter one, close to the end of chapter one. He says until, well, he's quoting psychoanalyst Judith Viorst, who says, until we can mourn the past, we are doomed to repeat it. I think we're seeing that on micro levels, on macro levels, on meso levels. And then he also quotes Anne Hart who says pain without memory is replaced by memory without pain. How many of us have replaced our painful memories with memories of no pain, which also means we're not living in reality. So in chapter 2, he gets into we kind of talked about this, but we he talks about he goes more into forgiveness and how dangerous the messages about forgiveness are and how stunting it is for our own healing through trauma. He says premature forgiveness silences the inner child in much the same way that biological parents silence the real child. Many of us continue to forbid our inner children and by extension ourselves our most basic rights and needs. We routinely shame and hate our inner children whenever they complain, feel, emote, or need anything but the rare necessities. Premature forgiveness preserves the ongoing re-traumatization and abandonment of our inner child. This is where so often I talk about, you know, that trauma often repeats itself. And, you know, I mean, I've had clients, I've had conversations where people are like, that's just kind of cruel. And I'm like, I mean, I've looked at it that way. I can see that perspective where that trauma repetition is just a cruel reality or it's an invitation and it's this continual invitation to pause, to learn, and to do it different. And in doing it different, we have to talk about what happened. What are we repeating? Where did it come from? Why are we doing what we are doing? And where did we learn to do this? And then he talks about perfectionism, which Mmm, that's an issue. I like this when he says, Perfectionism was probably born on the assembly line, where workers are forced to be as emotionless, efficient, needless, and trouble-free as the machines they tend. Industrial societies, via the training ground of the family, create perfectionistic, soul-destroying expectations in almost everyone. I like this because I've been working on You know, I've talked before about the subscription box that myself and Amy Smith are doing on boundaries. And so I've been writing month eight, which is all about boundaries in the workplace. And it's taken me probably four months to write month eight. And I told Amy, like, maybe I've written way too much and maybe we need to shorten it down. Like, I just kind of really got into this topic While I was busy doing other things, which is part of why it took me four months. But I said, I just feel like there's so much to say about workplace right now. And I think we're on maybe the verge of some change around work. I think COVID did that to us. I think the length of COVID has done that to us. But maybe we're in a place where we can start asking questions and we can be asking this question in various groups, in CEO groups, in business owner groups, in employee groups, in middle management groups right we can start asking like what is the future of the workplace what does it need to be to benefit the worker families the communities right the whole not just how can we make people work better more efficiently for the company so I like that he hit on that that like maybe it was born on those assembly lines those cruel assembly lines He says, Adult children who prematurely forgive their parents may never discover that they were bullied into perfectionism. Unrealistic values and unattainable goals may needle them incessantly, turning their psyches into an internal bed of nails. When we are heavily afflicted by perfectionism, we are so terrified of making mistakes that we never attempt anything new. We forget that life is replete with exciting opportunities. Our wonderful gift of free will is reduced to selecting different ways of picking on ourselves. A tiny pimple relentlessly picked becomes a large infected wound. And then he also talks about the extreme loneliness that we are born into when we are born into dysfunctional families. Our children who are supposed to be seen and not heard cannot help us suffer from overwhelming feelings of alienation and rejection. Many survivors who were silenced by the no-talk rule in childhood Continue to suffer the same kind of mute loneliness in adulthood. They have yet to learn that real connection and belonging comes from people talking uninhibitedly together. Perfectionism intensifies the silencing, isolating effect of the no talk rule. Many of us are unable to express anything about ourselves that is not 110% shiny. We are so afraid of being seen as less than perfect that there is little that we feel safe to share. He says, only when we fully express ourselves can we know that we are truly appreciated by others. Only through full self-disclosure can we discover that we are lovable in all aspects of ourselves. Much loneliness is healed through open and uncensored communication. The intimacy born out of honest sharing makes us feel good about ourselves and in turn encourages us to be increasingly forthright. And then he quotes Merle Shane who says, Friends are people who help you be more yourself, more the person you are intended to be. So this is where we are so far into our journey of the Tao of fully feeling. We're talking about how we get stripped, what the cause of not feeling could be, how that happens and how that can happen subtly, how it can happen maybe not so subtly, can happen quite overtly, although Even my clients, and I would say in my family, there was overt stripping of our emotions. It was pretty overt, and yet we could still deny it. We could still minimize what it was. So I I think we are understanding how it happens. Maybe he's hitting on even the taboo of talking about it. We're supposed to talk about our parents with love and honor, and we want to think in our culture that families are great that parents love their children, and that all is well. I often will say to my clients, we just have never had the history to support that belief. If you look at the history, and sometimes I'll say, let me just take our country. We don't have to go in world history. Let's just take our country. Has there ever been a time period, like a significant time period? I'm talking like where we're raising an entire generation, so like two decades where there hasn't been significant trauma that is impacting individuals and families and communities. I just don't know that there is. There's been some great inventive, innovative things that have come from hardship. And we can point to those and we can point to those even as a way of diminishing the trauma and the hardness that people were experiencing. And so I just don't know that we're Raised by people who were raised by people who were raised by people who weren't dealing with the difficulties and the traumas of life. And then if we add to that, whatever happened in their family and in their story to interfere with their emotional intelligence, with their emotional health, I just don't know that we have a track record to put out that many families, which also means, like Pete said, we're facing an epidemic of family dysfunction. And then we talked about the need to talk about it as it is, not minimizing it, to be able to grieve and connect with what was lost. And some of the ways that maybe we're going to jump out of grief into perfectionism, or we jump out of grief into just shutting it down and repressing it, or we jump out of grief into exploding it up and making it so big that we don't even know how to walk through it. These are some difficult and heavy things that he's getting into, and these are just the introduction and the first two chapters. But I think he also has a poignant way of spelling out the reward that comes when we start to fully feel and how much emotional energy we now reclaim when we don't have to give our emotional energy to repressing or to denying or to avoiding and bypassing, now, like he said, we just have to feel our feelings the way they are for what they are. And that gives us so much more emotional energy to spend on other things that we want to spend it on. So I look forward to continuing in this book, making our way through. Next week, we'll be talking about chapters two and three. So if you're ahead of me in this book, and you want to give me a heads up about something you want to talk about in another chapter, great. Send it to me. I'm happy to hear it. If you want to read along with me, you can still shoot me some comments. I have a Facebook page. Thanks for sharing Facebook page. You know, you can also go to our Healing Paths website and leave a comment for me there. So I look forward to having this book club with you. If this episode is past and it's not current, I'd still love to hear your thoughts. If you're just going through it for your first time, but you know, maybe it's 2023, maybe it's 2024, and you're just listening to this episode, and you just discovered this book and are going through it. So until next time, this is Jackie. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. The Legal Stuff This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.